grief can be lonely and isolating, especially for those experiencing pregnancy and infant loss. At times, it may even feel as if the sorrow might consume you. Welcome to the Birthies Loss Support Podcast. Join me, your host, Michelle Smith, as I hold a much-needed space for grief, remembrance, and the journey of healing through conversations with grief and trauma experts, the sharing of stories of loss and love, as well as guided meditations. Hello and welcome. I'm so grateful that you are here. In this episode, I'm very honored to have with me Sunny Von Mutius. And Sunny and I are going to be discussing an area of baby loss which can be even more shrouded in silence. The experience of the biological parent placing their baby for adoption. And so here's a bit about Sunny. Sunny has reinvented herself many, many times, each time picking up new tools, modalities, and methods for navigating life. After a corporate career in technology, she retired in her early 30s and then spent several years as a full-time nomad. She currently supports clients in designing their lives through intuitive strategy and now resides in Central Florida with her partner and their toddler. Welcome, Sunny, to the podcast. I am incredibly grateful and honored to have you here with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be welcomed. Yes, and I'm just very, again, grateful that you're willing to come share your story because I feel like there isn't enough awareness on the loss that takes place when we place a child for adoption. As that parent, you are grieving, and there may be even less support for you than there would be if you experience pregnancy or infant loss. And I think there's even more places where it can be shrouded in silence or shame or secrecy. That's definitely been my experience. That's, that's actually why I'm, I'm here today. This is the first time I'm talking publicly about my experience because in the context of, for instance, maybe a grief support group, if you bring up that you are a birth mom grieving that loss, there comes with it a whole lens of judgment and assumptions and, you know, people have their own thoughts about what your experience must have been. And so rather than just being a straight, I'm sorry for your loss, it's often lots of questions and expectations that you owe them the story. Mm. And so I find myself not talking about it. And I realized how supportive it would be to hear my story reflected in other people. So I wanted to be the change you want to see. Right. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll talk about it. Because if somebody doesn't start that trend, it never will start, right? So I think I think it needs to be talked about. Yes, yes, I do too. And as we chatted a bit even before having this conversation, I don't think it gets looked at as this loss. And it is a loss. And where would you go for support, especially if this happened 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? 
because even the judgments and the protocols and everything have changed about it. They have. And what I've discovered looking for support for myself is that each sort of generation has their own typical, you know, like not everybody's the same, of course, but there's that sort of like typical journey and it changes generation to generation. If you go back further in our history than my experience, if you go back to maybe the forties, fifties, even sixties and seventies, a lot of times birth moms weren't given consent. Their parents could sign if they were underage, their husbands could sign. (laughs) So that experience is very different than someone from my generation, eighties, nineties, or at least two thousands, where we were really encouraged to do a closed adoption, which means we have no relationship with the child after the documents are signed. And then somebody who placed a child for adoption in the early 2000s since has likely had an open adoption experience, which means they have contact with that child as much as this is agreed upon. And so there's like this arc of different experiences, even within the birth mother community that can make it really challenging to find a sort of group that has the ability to relate in a very particular way, if that makes sense. It does. It does. My brother adopted and he was born in 1970 and it was very much a closed adoption and I still remember getting the call it was through Catholic Charities and getting the Mm. call from Monsignor and telling my parents you know we have a baby (laughs) and I was only four at the time And then we went and picked him up from the orphanage. And I remember going to dinner and people talking about him and the waitress and all of that. And it was such happy memories. And he was 16 days old. Mm. So, you know, I kind of wonder now what happened in those 16 days for him as a baby. Mm -hmm. And for his mother. Yeah. Yeah. And his father, Mm -hmm. the little bit of information that my brother and his wife were able to find, they were in college and they decided to place him for adoption just because of their age and they weren't married, I think. And so it makes sense. And who knows, was she, as you said, forced to make the decision? Did she make it of her own? Was it a cultural expectation? There's just so many that we'll never know. And my brother, it's been a journey for my brother to make peace with that. That's a a common story for adopted children. There's a whole nother sort of lens Mm -hmm. that I cannot personally speak to, but I have witnessed in friends around me of adopted children and the grief that they feel for the family that could have been. Mm-hmm. right? Their ghost family is what some call it, that what could have happened for them, what could have been true for them if they had stayed with that original birth family. Yeah. Yeah. And I've viewed it as it's a huge gift. It's a huge gift and a very loving act to place your child for adoption if it's of your own choice. And again, we've talked about that it's not always, Mm -hmm. but I'm very grateful. I'm grateful to have my brother and my nieces and my sister-in-law and my great niece. So I think it's very selfless in many ways. And I, I appreciate that. That's a common, a common response when I share 
my story one-on-one, which I have done many times over the years. So my child is 22 now. So this has been some time for me since I became a birth mom. I was 17 when he was born. And that's a really common response. Like, oh, wow, you're, you know, there's like almost like a, the word that comes to mind is hero worship. I don't think that's correct, but there's a lot of admiration and appreciation and thought of it being a gift. And I appreciate that. And I receive that. And I've worked to let that in over the years, but I have to say initially that was really hard for me to hear because it's like saying that you appreciate someone for doing the work from healing from an abusive relationship. Like I didn't Mm. have a choice friends. Right. 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 I didn't go out and get myself pregnant at 17 in order to give another family the gift of a child. Right. And I don't know that that even (laughs) happens, you know, right now, most of the time it doesn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. I had a friend that placed her child with a family friend. It was an adoption situation and she did a lot of work. And for her, it did feel like she was a vessel to give their family friend a child, but not everybody feels that way. And not all mm-hmm. circumstances around pregnancy, there are different ones. I'm going to let you tell your story. Well, for me, 22 years later, right? And my son turned 22 last month. So that's, you know, that's every year it's there for me. I've had a long time to go through the process of grief and to grow around it and to let it grow within me and, and be with it. So I've done a lot of healing work so I can speak from that lens and I can very much tap in to the 16, 17 year old version of myself that was in it. Right. Mm-hmm. And as the adult that I am now having done the healing work that I've done, I absolutely consider myself having been a vessel for my first child. I now have the belief system that children choose, souls choose where they're going to be born. And I have the belief now that my first child chose to come through me in those circumstances to the parents that they ended up with. And that was the Mm -hmm. dynamic that that soul needed Mm -hmm. to get the life that was meant for them. That is my belief. Now, my 16 year old self finding out that I was pregnant had none of that context. I grew up in a fundamentally Christian family. I had none of that. And so now I can receive the, wow, what a gift. Thank you for doing that. It's so selfless at the time. Every time I heard that I had to do the inner gymnastics, so to speak to not rage at that person and be like, oh, you're freaking welcome. I absolutely wanted to get assaulted in high school, not get to graduate with my friends, have my entire life trajectory completely changed in order to make this other family that I will never see again happy and have the baby that they always wanted. That was absolutely what I set out to do. You're welcome for doing that. Yeah. Right. Like that's the conversation that happened in my head. Right. And it makes so much sense, you know, and even as you're saying it, it, I'm just sitting with it and thinking, well, thinking a lot of things, but in that there was trauma there was trauma Mm -hmm. and the trauma doesn't always get acknowledged either. Mm -mm. Well, I think what I want to say to other birth moms that might hear this is that rant I just went on is so valid. Yes, absolutely. Like it is not our problem 
that society has the view they do of adoption. And it is not really our job to validate that or make that okay for them. Mm-hmm. Although it's what we do because, you know, in society we're humane and polite to each other, but having that inner dialogue and, and potentially even having that come out of your mouth as your outer dialogue, especially as part of a, a healing process that that is valid, mm-hmm. right? It is, it is okay to not feel generous and heroistic and you know that's okay to not feel that way about being a birth mom that is valid right as I was taking all that in the word selfless took on a whole nother meaning Mm -hmm. selfless and you lost yourself in a sense Mm -hmm. you lost your autonomy yeah you lost so many things were taken from you in that situation Yeah. Yeah. So to give my story and, you know, Michelle, feel free to interrupt me at any time because I've told this story a few times and I can, I'm going to give you the short version and you tell me if there's any place you want more information. Okay. So the short version is that I was dating a guy when I was 16 and the way that my teenage years went, I was really rebellious. The way things went is that I had kind of moved out of my parents' space. I'd found a way to not be home a lot because I was that rebellious teenager. Right. And so I was basically living with this boyfriend. We worked together as lifeguards someplace. And like, we had a whole group of friends, but again, the short version is that while I had been intimate with that boyfriend, I had not yet chosen to give my virginity to anyone. And I use that language specifically because that's how I was raised is that my virginity was a gift right in the Christian context. Mm -hmm. So I had chosen not to do that yet. And after prom, my high boyfriend decided that that was something he deserved. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the experience of being assaulted. Um, It took me many years to even acknowledge that that's what had happened. And it was a lot of therapy. I did EMDR. So for years, I honestly, truly, genuinely didn't understand how I got pregnant. Mm -hmm. In fact, for a couple of years, I the internet was still newish, right? Like Google was born (laughs) a year before my child was, and it wasn't a household name yet, right? Just to put it all into context. And so I spent quite a few years sort of researching how one could get pregnant without having sex, because I thought I had done something wrong in being intimate with my boyfriend that led to this to happen. It was many years before I realized that I had even been assaulted. And so I was 16 and my friends were like, Hey, you need to take a pregnancy test. Cause I was a lifeguard and it was really obvious. I was starting to show and I still didn't understand that I was pregnant. So my friends bought me a pregnancy test and kind of forced me to take it and forced me to face reality. And by then in Florida state law, which is where I was living at the time, I didn't have a choice to not have the baby. And the way I was raised was that abortion was murder. Right. And so I didn't give myself the space to consider that as an option. My adult self looking back is pretty clear. I wouldn't have done that either way. It's just not in my nature. I absolutely support it as an option, but I didn't have that choice. So I think beyond being assaulted, that was my second moment of something to grieve is that I didn't have the choice about how the pregnancy was going to go. I was going to be pregnant. So here I am 16, three and a half, four months pregnant. I... I'm going to have a baby. I'm not prepared to have a baby. I'm in high school. I've broken up with my boyfriend at this point because they became more and more abusive as time went on and they got more and more into drugs. So I'm by myself. 
I end up finding a new boyfriend. <laughs> so grateful for that human being. We met before I started showing that I was pregnant. And when they realized I was pregnant, they did the math long before I did that I had been assaulted and they stuck with me. Their whole family sort of adopted me as part of their own. And I had a really great support system throughout the pregnancy in that respect. But I went to an, an agency, an adoption agency and said, I want to place my child for adoption. The irony is not lost on me that growing up in a Christian home, I participated in a uh, essay writing contest to win a scholarship that was about the topic. I had two topic options. Adoption is the loving option and why abortion is against God's will. Oh, wow. And I managed to merge them both into one essay and I won. And I think I won like tickets to SeaWorld and like a $500 towards my future college or something. I was like so proud of that. And then here I was like probably six, seven years later showing up, knocking on their door saying, I, I need to use your services. Mm. I, I need to place a child for adoption. And so that felt very full circle for me in the moment. Wow. Yeah. So you wrote that when you were 10 or 11? Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe nine or 10. Yeah. I was in late elementary school, maybe middle school, early middle school. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And to be clear too, just to acknowledge the journey and I'll touch on this again later in my story in a few minutes here, but my parents are completely different human beings now than they were then, than they were when I was being homeschooled and I was in middle school writing this essay. They're completely different humans now than they were when we found out I was pregnant and I was choosing to place a child for adoption. Like they're completely different humans now, as am I. And we now have a very delicious, juicy, like we're very close. And we've done a lot of healing work together as a family at the time, in the moment that all of this was happening, they did the best that they could with the tools they had. And they were not as supportive of me and my experience as I, I needed in that moment. And so I, yeah, I was raised in a family where that was what we did. We wrote essays about abortion and adoption and talked about how virginity was to be saved and waiting to kiss until marriage was a good idea. And that was just kind of the environment I was in. My, I think I was even taken, um, I actually remember this. I, we went, my mom would picket uh, abortion clinics and take me with her. Mm -hmm. And even now we've talked about it. That's not something she would do now. That's, that's like a, a line she wouldn't cross. But at the time, that's the house I grew up in just for context. So, so yeah, I went to the adoption agency. And they gave me a bunch of profiles of parents that this was a Christian adoption agency. They gave me profiles of parents and I got to narrow it down, choose who I wanted to meet. And I met one family and chose them. And I think for me, it was very important along the way to find places where I could have choice since there were so many ways in which choice had been taken away from me. Yeah. This is hindsight acknowledging this, right? I, in the moment, it's not like I was consciously doing that, but looking back, I think that's what I did. Well, and you were in shock too, right? Because you just didn't even conceive that you were pregnant. So I'm just taking it all in. It took me a while. Yeah. <laughs> and the way that I developed in that moment, right? In that, that season of my life, and it has carried through all the way now to me, I'm almost 40, is that when I, am faced with like a trauma or a, a shocking situation, I go into action. That's my response mechanism. That's like my defense mechanism is to immediately get into action to do something about it versus being with the feelings or the experience. I have to actively work 
to be with hard emotions when they come up in my space. And so throughout my teen pregnancy, I didn't do any of that work. I did very little of that work. I spent a lot of time being very analytical. How am I going to get myself out of this situation? How am I going to make sure that this human that's now stuck with me is not stuck with me, this teenager who has no support system to raise a child. And for years after I very much was in analytical mode, wanting to make sure that I made it worth it. So I found the parents, I got to meet them and meet their parents. And it was like a very lovely experience. I was still very grateful for that. My boyfriend at the time, his parents were very supportive. I went through the whole pregnancy, very much disassociating. I didn't even call it a baby. I called it it. I also did a lot of work to make sure that it air quotes, right. Wouldn't need me. So like I kept a journal, I made a family tree. I took a very detailed family medical history. I cross-stitched. I cross-stitched this little like Winnie the Pooh scene and sewed it into a pillow and gave it to them. So they'd have like a token from their mom to know that they were loved. Like I did all this analytical work to take care of this baby the best I could with my teenage self so that when I signed those papers, I would be done and not have to deal with this. (laughs) Isn't it cute that I thought I wouldn't have to deal with it ever again? (laughs) Right. Wow. Now, how did your parents feel about the adoption, if I can ask. Um, yeah, I can't really answer that because I'm not them. Right. I know that in short, it was very hard for them. They felt like they had failed mm. as parents. And the way that felt to my teenage self is that they were more interested in their own response and experience than they were in mine. And you know, now that I'm a parent and I'm almost as old now as they were when they were dealing with me. I get it, right? I get it. Kids don't come with manuals and nothing really prepares us for these things. They did not respond um, the way that I know they wish they had. And it was, they were not super supportive. So the way that I responded to that was to disassociate. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I was like, I'm done with you. I don't want to be around you. I'm going to go be around my boyfriend and his family because they're handling it in a way that feels better to me, which is much easier for them. I wasn't their child. Right. Right. And so my parents were supportive in that as a minor, I needed their approval. And there were certain pieces of the process that the Christian adoption agency required my parents to be involved in. And they showed up every time but it was years before we were all able to sit and talk about it and really process the impact to them because they lost their first grandchild. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Lineage means something to my dad. We have family name that's been handed down to generations. And so losing like his firstborn grandson meant something to him, especially at the time. And so he had that loss. And so they had their own grief to process. Yeah. I have so many questions, but I want to let you (laughs) tell your story. (laughs) Well, to finish up, I ended up on bed rest. In the end, the birth was really simple, but there was a few concerns. I don't even remember anymore. I've blocked a lot of it out and I'm okay with that. You know, I just don't need those details in my head anymore, but there was some concern. And so they ended up, I wasn't really on bed rest. That's not the correct term, but they didn't want me working. Mm-hmm. They didn't want me on my feet all day. And as a 16 year old, I basically had retail as an option. Right. And they were like, no, you can't do that. The baby came on time. I remember distinctly 
taken a bath and my water broke mm-hmm. and it took me a while to figure out what was going on because nobody had really talked me through what to expect. Right. And maybe I don't remember it to be fair to the humans that were in my life at the time. I don't remember anyone explaining to me what having a baby would be like and what the process would be like and what would happen in my body. I grew up in a homeschool Christian home, so I didn't have sex ed that really educated me. So like, I only knew in the movies when the water breaks and it looks like a water bloom burst, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that it could be a trickle for hours, Mm -hmm. but my water broke and my boyfriend at the time took me to the hospital and they admitted me and everything went swimmingly. I did not plan on having any medical, I don't know the right term for, I didn't plan on having any painkillers or anything, Mm -hmm. Uh, but in the end they had to give me an epidural because the baby's heart rate was elevated. But the baby came on time. I delivered well. I didn't even have to have stitches or anything. It was a pretty easy birth. I had said I didn't want to see the child because I felt like that would be harder. Right. My doctor wasn't able to be there. Nobody explained that to me either as a kid. Like I didn't realize that doctors had shifts. And if my doctor wasn't on call, it would be someone else. So that was a bit of a, I remember that being really hard that there was this man that I didn't know. A stranger. Yeah. Yeah you know, at my feet, you know, staring at my bed. Right. And especially <laughs> as, a as a teenager and as someone brought yeah. up very modest and Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a strange man and you're what, 17 yeah. years old at this point. Yeah. I turned 17 while I was pregnant and they explained, you know, they explained it to me, but I just remember being like, no, I want my doctor. Like, well, that's not an option and the baby's coming. And so, right. My mom was with me through the birth. Oh, um, she was supportive in that way. So we played card games and stuff while we waited. I was in labor for, oh, I don't honestly know. My water broke in the afternoon and the baby was born around 6 a.m. And I think that was the next day. So I think it was just that period of time, but I honestly don't know. I don't remember it being hard or frustrating or anything. I remember it being a little scary when the baby was in distress mm-hmm. and the uh, epidural guy had to come and do the thing in my spine. And that was scary because I didn't understand what epidural was and how it worked. Right. And childbirth education was just different 20, 30 yeah. years ago. Like it was totally. not, now we have information <laughs> overload before we had lack of information in a lot of ways. And it wouldn't have been comfortable for you perhaps to go to a childbirth education class. I mean, let's sit with this for a second. Right. I'm, I'm an unmarried 17 year old without a whole lot of family support. Right. My boyfriend at the time, like I said, I'm so grateful for him and his family. He gave me a ring to wear. So I would look like I was at least engaged Mm. like a cheap Kmart ring, but he was like, here, wear this. It will help. Right. He was thinking about those things on my behalf and his, yeah, his whole family was just super supportive, but no, I didn't have, and I didn't even know to ask. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know to ask those questions about what would happen and what to expect. And it was all very scary. There was a lot of things happening very quickly that I had not had explained to me. And I'm obviously like a very analytical data oriented person. And so that was all a lot of things that were out of my control that I didn't get to have a choice about. I remember the nurses being very kind. There was a lot of, you're so selfless. (laughs) It's so generous. Right. Right. And so they did, they, I remember hearing the baby cry and they took it away. They asked one more time, are you sure? And my mom was like, she already told you, this is not the time, you know, take it, take the baby away. 
later when I was in recovery, a nurse was not kind and said, I have to go on lunch. So all the babies have to get out of the nursery. So you have to take him. And so she put the baby in the room with me for an hour, even though there was a sign on the door that said, you know, the situation and everything. So I spent an hour with my child. Luckily, my boyfriend was there. So I wasn't alone. And I'm now grateful that that nurse was having a bad day because I am grateful to have met that tiny human and to have a moment to be with them. And then on day three, I very intentionally and very specifically requested that I get to introduce him to his parents. Hmm. And so his parents came into the room and I said, Hey, it's time to meet your mom and dad. And I handed him over the paperwork had all been signed and they got to leave the hospital with that baby. And I went home a few hours later and then I got to deal with breast milk coming in that again, I didn't know to expect that. And so they sent me home and said, put peas on your boobs. And I was like, what, why? Right. And I had to deal with sits baths and, you know, all the things to heal, but I was 17 and my body healed really quickly. And I went on to have spring break. I went to the beach for spring break, all excited. And I finished my high school credits while I was pregnant because I couldn't go to school. They wouldn't allow it at the time. So I finished my diploma and started college early. So, you know, the kid was born in the spring and by summer, I was a college student and approaching life very much. If I made this child not be able to live with their birth parent, I want to make sure if they ever find me that they see that it was worth it, that I went and lived a really awesome life and that I did something with myself. Like I made it worth it that I didn't keep you. That was my logic, right? That that was my logic for years. And so I did, I killed college. I started my career really early. I retired early. I've traveled the world. I did a lot of really cool stuff. And for years, my motivation was if my child finds me, I want them to realize that I did something with the life that I gave up. Mm. And then through all of that, you know, my siblings dealt with not having their nephew around. My parents dealt with losing their grandchild. And over the years, we talked about it as I did the work to deal with that grief. But it was probably five years before I acknowledged that I needed to grieve. And probably another three or four before I found a therapist to help me through it. And there's so many aspects of loss. Mm -hmm. I lost my childhood, right? I went from being a teenager to an adult really quickly. I lost my consent over my body and being assaulted. I lost choice in how that pregnancy would go. I lost choice in how the birth would go, right? Mm-hmm. For that's how it felt for me, right? Those aren't necessarily true statements. That was just my experience in the moment. And so that was just, there was a lot of things to grieve. And it took me years to acknowledge that it needed to happen because I had decided, I had decided that once I signed the papers and introduced the baby to their parents and I did all of the things to make sure that they had what they needed for me, that the rinse your hands, you're done with it, right? That's it. And oh my gosh, that's so not how it works. It's 20 years later and my husband and I were watching a hospital TV show a couple nights ago and there was a mom with a baby that was going to die. And so, you know, they're dealing with that loss and I'm sitting here crying, thinking about my first child. I have a baby now. I have a 16 month old baby. I have a child now. And I'm not thinking about the baby that's sleeping in the room next door. I'm thinking about that baby that I had to say goodbye to 22 years ago. Yeah. It never goes away. I wasn't prepared for that. I think it took me 10 years to even really embrace the fact that that was going to be my life and to just own it and be willing to do the work. Well, and we need space and support to be able to do 
the work. And I keep thinking about your 16-year-old self not even comprehending that you were pregnant and how it happened. And then moving so quickly to giving birth and losing your child, essentially. That was a lot. Yeah, it happened really quickly. And this, I guess this is really like the, for me, for me, it feels like full circle because 20 years later, I had done enough healing work that I was able to have the conversation with my husband of, so you want to have a child. I think, I think, I think I've done enough healing work that I can deal with being pregnant again. I think I've done enough healing work that I can actually allow myself to emotionally connect to the baby this time. Mm -hmm. And I think I've done enough healing work that I can own that I might actually be able to be a good mother. Cause deep down, I still feel like I was a bad mother to my first child, no matter how much work I do. That's what's there in like the pit of my stomach is that I was a horrible mother. Mm. And so now I have this little one and a half year old toddler and I'm getting to do all of that work. Right. It's kind of come, it feels full circle to me. And yet there are times where it feels like very separate stories, but often it kind of feels full circle to me that I kind of get a second chance. Yeah. But it took 20 years for me to be willing to even entertain that conversation. Right. Right. And then I don't know if ironically is the right word, but you were pregnant in the pandemic. And so there was a loss there too. Yeah. Of this time I'm pregnant and married and we conceive this child and an adult, adult. right. And we conceive this child in love. And now I can't even celebrate it. I can't go through the rituals. Yeah. That was definitely part of the, yeah. 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 And I mean, you, you know, you were my doula, so you got to witness all of that, that, um, yeah, there's so many things that I, again, I felt like it was, there was a lot of flashing back for me. Mm-hmm. Of, I was wanting to have this pregnancy feel different. I'm an adult. I get to be out in the world and not feel shame and not feel judged for being pregnant. So young, yada, yada, yada. And instead I spent the entire pregnancy in quarantine and the delivery of the baby was all colored by who's allowed to be in the room and will people be masked. And so, yeah, that was like a whole nother thing, but that's the short version believe it or not, I could obviously go down lots and lots of rabbit holes along the way, but that's the short version. And it's been 20 plus years and it's still there for me. I'm still living with it. And I've never actually found a support group or space that felt really designed for talking about this sort of experience. And so I've done the work on my own. Yeah. Well, and There's so many nuances here and so many layers. I'm just sitting with it again. And the fact that it is a loss, and I do feel it's selfless in many ways, but you so elegantly pointed out that it wasn't something that you really wanted to do to do this selfless act, right? Right. And because there was so much shock and trauma around it. And that may be true for many birth parents. Mm -hmm. And there's situations where perhaps the birth mother wants to 
place the child for adoption, but maybe the father doesn't, or the father doesn't know. Like there, there's just all these layers of loss that don't necessarily get acknowledged. And if we can't acknowledge it, how can we heal it? Mm-hmm. And even in where does that impact you now as a mother? If someone asks you how many children you have? Oh, that's like a whole nother, you know, I, I was on a podcast recently talking about the birth of my child during the pandemic. And I realized they asked me the question, what did you expect of pregnancy? And I didn't even think twice. I did not acknowledge that I'd been pregnant before. Mm -hmm. And so there's like, I've conditioned myself to my first response is to pretend like it never happened. Cause it's not something that I want to open that can of worms to deal with the response from people. I have to be in a particular space sort of energetically to even be able to be with somebody else's response to my story. Mm-hmm. And I think anybody who's been assaulted has that experience. When you share the detail of, of your past that you've been assaulted or raped, that people have a response to that, right. That you have to be with. I think people who have serious illness deal with it too. When you tell someone you've been diagnosed with cancer, they have their own experience of that and you have to be with it. Right. Yes. My brother's been going through that with my sister-in-law. And I noticed when I went to visit, people would ask him questions and he's like, my wife is dying of cancer and it's okay. Like we're, we're handling, you know, because Mm -hmm. then he gets overwhelmed with the expressions of sympathy Mm -hmm. and that gets overwhelming to him sometimes where he's just trying to navigate it. I observed him doing that. And so that makes a lot of sense to me what you're saying. Yeah. I will say that one thing that's been there for me for the past 20 years is every single time I go to a gynecologist visit. Mm-hmm. especially if it's a new doctor, I have to fill out the form and they ask how many live births, how many miscarriages, how many living children. And I'm always like, unless I'm here trying to conceive a child, I don't understand why this is relevant to this visit. And every time they ask about the disparity between having had a live birth, but not having living children. Mm-hmm. And if I can lie about it, but then they ask me about the birth right? They want to know how it went. And so like, I have to relive that once a year when I go for my pap smear, because they want to know about my history. And sometimes when they find out that I placed the baby for adoption, they have a response. Sometimes they just move along. And when they move along, I'm so grateful because I don't actually want to talk about it. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's another way in which we're kind of forced as birth moms to it never really goes away. It's always there. And I know not every birth mom has lots of feelings about it. Some people have done the healing work and like, they're very complete about it. And there's others like me that it's always there for them, but we don't get to just forget it happened, even if we want to. Right. Cause our system makes it up. Yeah. Yeah. And I've worked with clients over the years where mm, they're in this relationship now, but in a previous relationship, they became pregnant. And, or maybe they were assaulted. Like there's so many different scenarios, but they perhaps had an abortion Mm -hmm. or placed a baby for adoption. And they'll tell me, but they're like, don't tell my partner. And they'll tell all their caregivers, don't tell my partner because their partner doesn't know because they don't feel safe sharing it. Or perhaps they have shame. Like there can be different scenarios. Or just because it's none of their business. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been in that situation as a doula, as a childbirth educator, and I honor what my client wants, right? And we can have a private discussion about it if they want to, but it is complicated and it carries over as you were telling your story too, of when someone has a stillbirth, Mm -hmm. they lose a baby in that first year and people ask how many children they have. Or it could be, you know, any pregnancy loss, but depending upon who's in front of you, do you want to open that up and where you're at on that particular day? Right. Yes, I have two children and one of them is living. And then you have to navigate that person's response or lack of response. Mm -hmm. And parents talk about that being so heavy and difficult and you want to honor your child, but sometimes it's just too awkward and you have to know your audience. And I think in this situation, there's even more of that when you've placed a child up for adoption. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I don't know if it's more, but it is a different type of, I think it's, I think it's more normalized, right? Right. It is more acceptable and normalized to have had a miscarriage or to have lost a child at a young age. Those are things that we know happen. Mm-hmm. We don't really talk about the birth moms in the adoption scenario very much. Mm-hmm. And so having lost a child in that way is something a lot of people like we have in our awareness that miscarriages happen. We have in our awareness that SIDS exists. We have in our awareness from movies and lifetime shows and all the things, right? There's not a whole lot of visibility to the mother in the, the birth mother in the adoption situation. And so I think when we divulge that information, people have to go through the, oh, right, that happens. Oh, I've never met anyone who's done that before. I have my own curiosity or my own judgments, or I have a friend who was adopted and they had this experience and I'm projecting it onto you as a birth mom. Mm. We have to deal with them dealing with all of that in the moment of us sharing our detail because it's not normalized, which is why I'm here and talking about it. Cause I feel like the more we normalize it, the more people will digest their own experience with it. And the more people like me will be likely to share and not feel like it's a huge energetic drain (laughs) to even open the conversation. (laughs) Right. Right. And I think even now it could be, I hate the word, but acceptable versus 30, 40, 50 years ago, where someone becomes pregnant and they're unmarried, where they're sent to a convent Mm -hmm. and we just don't talk about it. Or sometimes grandparents would adopt the child essentially. Mm -hmm. And it's actually their grandchild, but they raise the child like their own child. Or a sibling, an older sibling Mm -hmm. or a cousin. Mm -hmm. That's happened a lot pre seventies and eighties. Yeah. It's become less and less common these days, but that was a fairly common situation. I have a friend who researches adoptions for people to help them find their birth families. Oh, wow. And over the years, watching them share on social media about their searches and things, what they can anyway, with confidentiality. There's a lot of that from that, that generation. Yeah. I'm grateful that I, there's so many things about how things went for me that I wish had gone differently or that I think is complete bullshit and that systems need to be designed differently and all that. But there's also so much that I'm enormously grateful for 
right? I'm grateful that I was able as a teenager to go to an agency and say, this is what I want to do. My parents had to sign permission because I was a minor, but like I could go and they didn't like say, yo, we can't talk to you. Where are your parents? Mm-hmm. Right. I went to the first few visits alone that I got to meet the parents before I gave the child to them. Right. That I got to meet, you know, I could have met multiple sets of parents, right? There's so many things that have changed over the years that make it where we get to be more a part of the process. And even now, you know, when I placed my child, the open adoption was heavily discouraged. There wasn't a whole lot of awareness of how to handle that legally. Right. And now closed adoption is heavily discouraged because we've discovered that it's so much healthier for the baby and the birth mom. So, you know, we are, things are, times are a changing. And I think, I think we could do better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and now even in my practice, how many of my couples are not married and it's not frowned upon. It just is right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just is. Mm-hmm. And there's not that same judgment and shame like there was years ago. And so I think culturally we're growing and evolving, but you're right. There's a lot a lot more work to be done. Yeah. I think one of the things that's been interesting for me now being a, a baby mama again is that I've never identified as a parent. I've always been like, I'm a mom, right? Like on Mother's Day, oh my gosh, you know, you go to church or a spiritual center, or any kind of public space and on Mother's Day, they want to acknowledge the moms. And I remember the first time my kid was 10 years old. And I stood up on mother's day mm. in the spiritual center I was at. And I didn't know a single person in the room. So nobody there was going to be like, wait, what you're a mom. And like everybody clapping for the moms in the room and giving them a rose. And oh, I sobbed like a baby. I bet. I'd never been acknowledged as a mom before. And I I'd hadn't allowed myself to be acknowledged as a mom before. So I've identified as a mom for 20 something years now. It wasn't until my second child was born, the child I'm now parenting that I started to really identify as a parent because I'd never, I did not parent my first child, Mm. right? I I did not Mm. inform their development. I did not get up at night with them. I did not deal with all of the developmental milestones, but I am a mom. I am their mom. I'm not their parent, but I am one of their moms. And that's been a really helpful distinction for me to make for myself over the years. Because for a long time, I was like, I just was the vessel, right? Like I just gave birth to that being but to really acknowledge like, no, they grew inside me and we have a connection. And I went through a lot to support them and it was selfless to give them away. And I say give specifically because I purposefully introduced them to their parents. I did choose to relate to it as a gift, Mm -hmm. but it's taken me a long time to allow myself to own the label of mother to that child. And now that I have a child I am parenting, I even more deeply identify with that distinction of having been a mom, but not a parent. Mm. And there's moments where I'm sitting with my little baby and they're looking up at me or falling asleep on my my lap. And, you know, got their cute little perfect features on my lap and I'm staring at how awesome they are. And I have a moment where I'm like, I didn't give myself a chance to do this 20 years ago. Somebody, hopefully, right. Hopefully their adoptive parents did this, but I didn't. Right. And I have that moment of grief all over again. Yeah. Yeah. This is so profound, Sunny. I'm so grateful that we're having this conversation because it really is a grief that isn't acknowledged. 
And if it isn't acknowledged, how can we acknowledge it for ourselves without shutting it down? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an important conversation. And again, like to anybody listening like that, it's all valid, right? Like <laughs> I was having this conversation with somebody the other day, two emotions can exist in the same place, even if they feel conflicting Yes, and it can be hard to let them exist. But if we are able to, it's so healthy for our systems, our nervous system, our heart system, right? All of us. So for me to be able to sit there and hold my baby and think about how perfect they are and how grateful I am that I get to be their mama and how sad I am that I chose not to be the parent of my first child. And did like, I can sit there and cry and grieve, not mothering, not parenting my first child while loving on my second child. And those two things can exist in the same place. And they're both valid experiences. And I don't have to feel guilty for either one of those things. If I don't want to, I can, I mean, I might, right. Feelings are hard to control, but if I don't let my thoughts go there, if I continually remind myself, I don't have to be guilty for this. It's okay to think about my first child while being with my second child. It's okay that I didn't do this with my first child. For me in that moment, it felt like the loving option to give them to another set of parents because I knew I wasn't prepared to give them the life I wanted. All of those things can exist in the same place. It's just really hard sometimes to hold all of those feelings. Yeah. Yeah. And the, even the acknowledgement you know, that we can still have joy in our grief. Mm-hmm. And I think if we just allow the emotion to be expressed and sit with it and honor our body, honor the emotion and not, or do our best, I should say, to not place judgment on what it means. Mm-hmm. It can move through us quicker. It doesn't get held in our body. Mm-hmm. It lets those difficult emotions or the places where we may have held trauma in our bodies to soften and release instead of judging it or shoving it down. Oh, that reminds me of a moment. You might remember this, Michelle, since you were there. So when I gave birth to my child during the pandemic, I'd been in labor for like 24 hours and my body just wasn't progressing. I was like stuck at just a couple of centimeters and you left to go take a well-earned break. And my husband went left to go get a snack for me. And I was left alone for the first time in the whole labor process. And I checked in with my body and was like, Hey body, it's time to release this little human. Like, let's get on board. This needs to happen. And I had this like wave of emotion hit me realizing that deep in my womb space, right in my creative space, I was terrified that I was in a hospital giving birth to a baby and they were going to take it away. Yes. Yes. And then we did some work around that. I have goosebumps from head to toe. Yeah, you did. I, my, my husband came back and I was in tears and he's like, what's wrong. And the nurse came in and I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm just having a moment. Give me a moment. Leave me alone. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. You know? So she was great. She left. And I sent my husband off and he came back with the car seat and with a onesie. And like, I needed evidence that we were prepared to take this one home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like tearing up even now because my inner I am 17 too. year old, I am too. you know, there's, there's a teenager still somewhere inside of me that was having a moment of like, all right, at the end of this, they're going to take the baby away. But I had done all this work that I was attached to this one. 
Mm-hmm. You know, this was, this is my baby and I needed evidence and I needed your support as my doula. And I needed my spouse's support. And once we did that work, it, what, I mean, I think I went from two to five centimeters in an hour and then from five centimeters to birth in an hour. Like it was like, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. <laughs> we have a baby, right? Yeah. It's amazing what our bodies hold and how valuable it is to do the work to release. Yeah. Yeah. And how powerful that you had that realization. And it makes so much sense. Once I put voice to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once I put voice to it, you and my spouse were both like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Which was super validating for me. And then everybody jumped into action and like you did energy work and he went and got the things from the car and everything was set up and it was like, okay, now I'm ready. Yeah. But it's like, you know, to, it sounds easy now that I say it, but oh my gosh, it took an enormous amount of emotional work in a very short amount of time for me to get connected to that part of myself and all of the healing work I'd done for the past 20 years had to come into play. Right. And the work right? you did in your pregnancy, you did mm-hmm. so much work in your pregnancy. I did. I did. Yeah. And so I don't know other mother's experiences, right? I can only speak to my own. And for me, as a birth mom coming home with a baby, right? So I am a birth mom 20 years ago. I have an adult son out there somewhere. I could be a grandma for all I know. Mm-hmm. And here I am choosing to have a baby with my partner as an adult in a pandemic, all the things, right? And then I come home with a baby and like, we were prepared, like we were prepared, right? Like we had this whole fourth trimester plan. We had this really great support system. There was like a whole menu planned out for how we were going to nourish my body. I was like all set up to breast. We were prepared. And yet we got home with this little baby. I came home first because we had some complications after birth. And then my partner brought the baby home the next day and they like come home and they're so excited to hand the baby to me because I haven't even really held the baby without all the cords from the NICU. And I have the baby for the first time in my arms, not connected to anything else. And I like broke down in tears because I was like, I don't know what to do with this. Right, right. And your little one decided to come early too. Yes, yes, yes. My child was five weeks early. And so I really, there was a lot of ways in which we weren't prepared, but we were prepared. Like we had done so much work that even though it was early, we both were like, we got this, right? We'd asked all the right questions. The nursery wasn't done, but we knew that didn't matter because we're old enough to understand. We've seen enough of our friends go through it. Like you don't use the nursery for months anyway. It's fine. And yet I'm holding this little baby and my inner 17 year old is like, what am I supposed to do with this? Mm -hmm. And the older my kid gets, the more confident I get. Not because like most of my new mom friends are talking about how they like, feel like they're as the baby grows, they're learning how to be with the baby. That's not my experience. My experience is the older my child gets, the less I associate them with my first child who was a baby, because even though I have a grown man out there somewhere that I'm the birth mama to, in my mind, it's that little tiny baby that was left alone with me in that room for an hour. That's my child. Mm. And being alone with a baby now, 20 years later, I felt overwhelmed and it was, I couldn't just, it was just so many feelings. And so the older my child gets now, the less I connect the two and the easier it is for me to step into parenting them. It's so humans are so complex. We are just so complex. Yeah. That's profound. I'm sitting with that too. Just taking it in. 
That makes so much sense. It really does. And something I find interesting and having had experience with it, sitting with various people as they're getting ready to transition or pass away and hearing this too in all of my grief trainings that mothers, we remember all of our babies and how even if a mother hasn't spoken about the child that was placed for adoption or a stillbirth or a loss, that they will speak about their child on their deathbed Mm. and speak of all their children, even if there's been silence before. Mm. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's making me teary (laughs) thinking about it. I think for me, it took me a long time to talk about the fact that I was a birth mom. And as I did the healing work, I was more likely to share with my inner circle. It's always been important to me that talking about my first son not be taboo. Yeah. That was really important to me with my nuclear family, with the time with my parents, my siblings, they kind of tiptoed around it for a while. And I I had a little bit of a breakdown. I kind of yelled and snapped at them, but you know, as a teenager, and since then we've had lots of very calm, loving conversations about the (laughs) fact that it happened. And I need you to acknowledge it happened. And I don't know what your grief process is. I honor that you have your own process, that this human was related to you as well. And you have your own feelings about it, but mine matter in this situation. And I need it to be okay to talk about. Yeah. Cause how could you heal the loss of your child and also the loss of your virginity? The fact that you were assaulted, like, how can you heal that if you aren't able to acknowledge it? Yeah. I mean, I still remember distinctly having the conversation with my my parents individually. I think it was probably 10 years after the adoption took place, informing them that, Hey, by the way, I was assaulted. I didn't remember it. I uncovered it in therapy a few years back and I'm finally ready to talk to you about it and their experience of that. And like the shame and the grief they felt for not having realized it or not knowing it or not protecting me as my parent, you know, all the things that they went through. Right. Yeah. And I didn't tell them until I felt strong enough to hold space for that. Cause I knew they were going to have as a mom to this adopted baby. Right. And as now an adult, 10 years later, I knew that they were going to have a reaction and I wanted to be able to be with that reaction and not have it trigger me. And so it took me probably two or three years after I uncovered that detail for myself and processed it before I even told my family about it because there's so many layers. Yeah. There's just so many layers. Yeah. I think what it's important to kind of summarize as a birth mom, who's out here sharing my story publicly, the things that are really important for me that other birth moms hear from somebody who's been through it, your feelings are valid. Your experience is valid for the rest of your life. Whatever comes up for you about that is valid. The more you can express your feelings, the faster you will heal. And there's never, in my experience, there's never a point where we're healed because it's grief and grief never is actually like grief is forever. (laughs) We just grow around it. Right. And we adapt to it, but it never just goes away. Right. And so 
if you're hanging on to that hope that eventually it will go away, I think my invitation is to embrace the fact that it won't and learn how to be with it. Cause that's for me is when things started to really open up and I felt some spaciousness and some support and things started to feel less restricted. Yeah. 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 Grief is definitely a journey. Yeah. A journey. Yeah. Yeah. I know people in grief, we hate this term of, you know, a new normal, but there is that process of learning and accepting and walking and journeying with this loss mm-hmm. and how it does impact your life and how you learn to still have a relationship with someone you're grieving. Mm-hmm. And I would think even in this case where your child is placed for adoption, there's still a space that there is a relationship. And some people choose to keep that going with open adoption or finding each other, but there's still a relationship between you and your son. Yeah. On some levels. Absolutely. I think of my son all the time, even now, 20 plus years later, every year on their birthday, for sure. Mm -hmm. The year they turned 18, was a really big year for me because it was the year they were old enough to find me if they wanted to. And that felt significant. Yeah. I remember it being a big deal that year they turned 16 and I knew they were probably getting their driver's license the year they turned 11 and they were officially a tween. Like I have a journal that I write in every year on their birthday where I imagine what their life must be like, like what milestones that they might be dealing with and have like a conversation with them in my head as part of my own healing journey. I love that. It's for a while. I bought them birthday cards every year. I ended up stopping that because I felt like it was harder. It was not help. It was not healing for me. It was almost Mm. like a punishment for me that I had to go to the store and shop for this card that I couldn't give to the person. So I stopped, but I mean, yeah, the past 20 years I've, you know, I went and found books and found groups online and therapists and looked for podcasts and you know, it's becoming more and more common, I think, to see adoption storylines in TV shows. I watched This Is Us with my mom and, you know, Randall is the adopted triplet. There's, it's becoming less and less unusual to see it, which I think is great. And it still very rarely touches much on the birth mom experience. And so I just hope we continue to give voice to this angle and provide spaces for the grief and the healing to happen. Yeah, agreed. And so if someone would like to reach out to you, Sunny, how could they reach you? I'm on all the social media platforms, um, but I actually offer spiritual mentorship and whatnot. So you can find me through that website, which is wildflowerstrategy.com. And that has all my links to social and contact me and all that fun stuff. Perfect. And then before we close this out, is there anything else you would like to leave the listeners with? I know that you spoke to the hearts of birth parents, but is there something maybe you would like to speak to someone that hasn't experienced this grief? Such a great question. Um, I think I think what I would leave is, 
and this is the same, it's back to something we spoke of earlier. And it's the same for somebody who, whether you're talking to somebody who's sharing that they've experienced the grief of being a birth mom, or they're sharing a traumatic detail about their past, or even a diagnosis that they recently got. When someone shares news with you, that is difficult for them. It's a difficult moment in their life. If you can develop a muscle around keeping your response and your feelings about that to yourself and dealing with them on your own versus putting them in the space of the person who's sharing with you, Mm. that is such a big, enormous, meaningful gift to that person who's sharing with you. Yes. Yes. And listening. Yes. And validating and saying, I hear you. And not yes. trying to fix it or put yes. your views on it, like you said. Yes. And circling back to everyone's experience of grief is different. And what's helpful mm-hmm. to one person may not be to another. Mm-hmm. Yes, those same good, I don't want to call them rules, but just kind of guidelines of yeah. holding space. And I want to be clear here. I'm not saying not to have your own opinions or experiences of their news, right? Like you absolutely are allowed to validate it in that. And I encourage you to process those feelings. Just don't do it in the moment with the person who's sharing it with you. Yeah. If you can, that's just such a big gift. So that's what I would say. If you're not a birth mom and you're hearing this, that if I could offer that as a birth mom, that's what I would say is see if you can build a muscle around holding space for people to share stuff with you and not have to deal with your stuff in that moment because sharing takes energy. Yes. Yes. And I think for parents that have lost a child, there's a relatability because sometimes they talk about when they share the news, then they're comforting that person Mm -hmm. while they're deep in the grief and the trauma. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Sunny. This has just been profound. And again, that dichotomy of a beautiful conversation, right? It's a really difficult subject, but it's been such a beautiful conversation and I'm so grateful. Me too. Like I said, this is the first time I have shared with this in a way that I knew would be publicly heard. And it's been very cathartic and healing for me. So thank you for offering a space for these conversations and a voice to those of us that have a journey with grief and are willing to talk about it. It's just such an important thing you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm just so grateful that you chose me as your doula as well. Mm-hmm. I just have me to too. say that. Me I'm too. so grateful. So grateful. Oh, so thank you all for listening and just be kind. Be kind to yourself as you work through your feelings of grief, as you hold space for someone else. She holds space for yourself. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this episode helpful and it provided you some comfort or insights. For a list of bereavement resources or to connect with me for grief support, please visit my website at birthyservices.com backslash loss-support. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at Birthies Loss Support. If you would like to help 
to support me in this work to hold space for grieving families, one of the simplest and best ways is to please follow, rate, review, and share, and share again this podcast. And please be kind, compassionate, and patient with yourself as you walk this journey of grief, remembrance, and renewed hope. Remember, there is no right way to grieve the loss of your baby or your loved one.